Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I want to help you become the kind of leader you want to be for your nonprofit organization. Thanks for listening. If you want to be a nonprofit leader, or maybe you're just more effective in the role you're in now, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor, find the share button. Usually it's within the episode graphic on the device you're listening to this episode right now. You can click on it and find a way to share, maybe through text or email. Share this episode with one other person so that we can continue to build the kind of global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, I had a fantastic conversation this episode with my colleague, Lee Williams, who brings her great expertise as a meeting scientist to the larger topic of better board engagement. And I know this is a topic that's on your mind. You've likely had conversations with your nonprofit colleagues about this exact subject. And that really was the genesis for this episode. Lee and I have had many conversations as a result of discussions with our mastermind cohorts as well as current organizational clients. And they're all facing what you may be facing too, which is how to better engage the talent that exists on your nonprofit's board of directors. So Lee has brought together the best of the best. What, in fact, are the best organizations in the nonprofit community doing to achieve board engagement? What are some of the challenges that many are facing? And she's put together five specific tactics that you can utilize right away to help you better engage your board of directors. As always, Lee brings lots of resources and ideas to the table, so check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 140. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Lee and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work she's doing here at PMA Consulting. And you might also want to check out a very popular previous episode that Lee was part of. It was episode number 59. And she offered some still very relevant advice about conducting dynamic virtual meetings. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website checking out the show notes, make sure you connect with us as well. We're on all of the primary social media platforms, and we'd be happy to connect with you directly to talk about your organization's strategic planning or perhaps your own personal journey to nonprofit leadership. Let's have a conversation about how we might be able to help you, particularly if you're interested in one of our unique mastermind leadership development programs. We do have a spot available. If you're listening to this episode as it's released in January of 2022, we've got a spot available in our spring cohort. Make sure you check out pattonmcdowell.com forward slash mastermind to learn all of the details. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lee Williams. Lee, thank you for joining me again on the path. Thanks for having me back to continue our conversation from over 80 episodes ago. Can you believe it? (laughs) I cannot. Thank you for uh, staying with me for all of these episodes. And of course, so many of these episodes, Lee, have led to conversations you and I have had both indirectly with some of our friends in the Mastermind program as they seek to better engage their boards as well as the board work that you in particular are doing. And I'm curious, I guess, yeah, as we pondered this episode, what what has motivated you to organize these thoughts around board best practices? Absolutely. So I think one of the theme songs we heard from the last year and a half during the pandemic is that our nonprofit leaders are facing a lot of challenges. And one of the biggest ones is how to engage their board. And what I'm hearing, Patton, is that our board leaders are either being micromanaged by their board, kind of option number one, or their board is totally disengaged, neither of which is really helping them do the work that they need to be doing. You're so right. And I hear the exact same kind of refrain. And it's unfortunate because obviously there's enough stress going on in this kind of COVID environment. And nonprofit leaders are also dealing with staffing issues and just everything else about running a program and seeking funds and all that. So hopefully this episode will give our listeners some specific tactics and ideas to help on this particular point, which is how do we take advantage of the talent that often does exist? In other words, it's not a challenge, I think, 
in terms of the talent you have on your board roster. It's engaging them. And so that's why I'm really excited about how you've organized uh, around these five key best practices. So let's dive in, Lee, and talk about these five. And, and the first one you have titled Create Confident Ambassadors. And interesting that you lead with that in terms of board engagement. What do you mean by create confident ambassadors? What I mean by that is that I think we sometimes need to go back to the basics when we're thinking about our boards. Sometimes we get so far ahead of ourselves with thinking about all that they need to do. But I think we really need to make sure that everyone on the board can clearly and concisely articulate the organization's mission and vision, right? So not only can your board members clearly articulate your mission, what do we do? And want to make sure that they can also articulate the vision, where is the organization going? I think that we really take for granted that all of our board members can do that um, because as nonprofit leaders, we live and breathe the mission every single day, but it's really critical to make sure that your whole board is on the same page about those foundational elements before you go any further. That's such a good point. And in fact, I think, I bet if we look at any website of any nonprofit we can think of right now, most are really good at articulating the mission the what we do. I think fewer still, however, articulate a vision very well about where they're going, just as you said. And if we can't do that and we don't articulate it well, then certainly it's going to be hard for our board members to do so. And I guess that's your point starting there, right? Can our key ambassadors, which are our board members, can they articulate that mission and vision? In fact, you would suggest there's a third step there, right, Lee, that we, we, get, we need them clear on mission and vision, but they ought to be able to maybe take it one step further. Absolutely. So the best boards that we've worked with, and I think that you would agree, do go a step beyond that. I think it's really effective when a nonprofit leader can not only have their board members articulate their mission and vision, but for the nonprofit leader themselves to be able to articulate where the organization is going and their top three to five strategic priorities, maybe for the year. So that as a board member, I understand our mission, our vision, and what we're supposed to be working on. If they only know the mission and vision, but they don't know the headlines for the year, then they might not understand how to plug in and they might not be as engaged as you want them to be. So I think we've had we've had a couple of clients that have gone so far as to even create a little PowerPoint presentation where they're talking about, you know, the executive director or development director is talking about where they want to go this year and how the board can plug in and how they fit into those priorities. Doesn't need to be, you know, a three-hour meeting where you talk about all that's going on in the organization. In fact, I think we would argue that it really should be another one pager where every board member has access to knowing what those top three to five strategic priorities are for the year. I think that's a great point. And, and, and I would underline the point it doesn't have to be overly elaborate. Can you, in fact, I think you should in a summarized fashion, be able to put the mission, the vision, and then what you're describing in essence are the action steps. So if I'm an ambassador, I'm a board member out in the community, I can answer the question what we do, I can answer what our goal is, where we're going. And if I've got somebody engaged in conversation, I can then talk about, and here's some ways you can get involved. Here are the strategic priorities we have uh, in the year ahead. And I think that would just make board members feel so much more comfortable and confident. And, and you haven't kind of uh, overwhelmed them with information. Um, in fact, I think, Lee, you have worked with some clients that you created kind of an avatar document. And maybe you could talk about what exactly that is and how it ties into this concept of giving our board members effective tools. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that because I was actually listening to Manuel Campbell's episode the other day. And that was an organization we've worked with recently at Aspire, where Manuel is the executive director. And he was really fired up about this idea of being able to create confident ambassadors with his board. And we worked with him to create some avatar documents is what we called them to equip the board members to be able to go talk to a couple different types of potential funders. So if I'm a board member and I have access to a corporate funder, maybe through my work, you know, how would I pitch Aspire and the work they do to maybe invite investment down the line or 
Um, the other ones they also wanted us to work on that were fun were the faith community and also foundations. Such a good example. And again, kudos to Manuel and the Aspire team for being clear about identifying all right, who are board members likely to run into and then anticipating the types of questions or the, the nature of that conversation. And so this one pager identified the avatar, you know, literally the corporate executive or the faith community leader or just an individual family. And then what elements of the organization would they best relate to? And so it became a great tool. And obviously that's a living document that now board members can own and can refine as they have conversations. But it all leads back to your point, Lee. It's not that hard to equip our board members with these tools to make them confident ambassadors. And then everything else they do as a board member is going to get better because of this fact. Absolutely. All right. We got them confident. We have them feeling better about their board uh, role and responsibility, but maybe that's the next thing we need to talk about. In fact, you've talked about many organizations we think don't clarify the actual responsibilities of their board members. So what do you see there in terms of this second element? How can we do a better job of, I guess it starts with onboarding. Right. So for the most part, I think, unfortunately, we do not do a great job as a sector at orienting our board members to the organization and to their role on the board. I think we do a great job mostly of nominating, getting them all excited to join, and then we kind of expect them to figure it out. Maybe we do, maybe we give them a, you know, a ton of material that we throw at them, but we don't really take the time to orient them to what we really want them to do and how to help us. Fact, yeah, the worst case scenario, and I bet everybody listening can relate to this, that we're all too quick to kind of give them the big three ring binder of every piece of material the organization has <laughs> produced in recent years. But again, we need to be more sensitive to that's not good onboarding. That's just overload. And so it's back to your point in number one, Leah, the effective one pager mission, vision, action the effective one pager of here are the kind of key audience members we're going to interact with. So you can be confident. And it sounds like Lee, that's your point here. We need to do a better job of, of giving them a succinct or more precise set of material. In fact, I think you think there are a couple of items in particular you would put into this onboarding packet. Exactly. So I think that we could talk about, you know, 10 elements, but to really focus in on just a couple I think that if you're kind of starting from scratch, two good places to start that are really key for your board member's engagement are a board member letter of agreement or job description, whatever you want to call it. And you and I have worked with a lot of organizations that this really resonates with because we kind of break it down into three sections. So in section number one of the letter of agreement, we talk about how board members agree to be a mission ambassador. They, we want them to agree to committing to the mission and acting as an ambassador for your organization. We also want to, in section two of the letter of agreement, want them to really engage in philanthropic leadership. You know, that's the part where we have a couple of line items about how to participate in fundraising and what that really means. And then in the third section, we really want people to understand what it means to be an active participant on the board and what they're really agreeing to, you know, things like preparing for and attending meetings, going to the events to the, to the extent you're able. And then you and I both love the fact that we include kind of a graceful exit clause. I think there's a lot of awkwardness on boards about, okay, I joined this board five years ago. Maybe the organization doesn't exactly always enforce term limits. So what do you do about the board member that's just completely disengaged? And so if you include kind of a, quote, graceful exit clause in the letter of agreement that literally states, you know, if I'm not able to do these um, responsibilities that are outlined in the letter of agreement or the job description, then I will offer my resignation. And I really think that that will avoid a lot of awkward conversations down the line if it's really spelled out from the very beginning and you get board members buy in. It's such a good point. In fact, I've seen the the best practice there on that point 
is to have this uh, letter of agreement reviewed annually, even if the terms are three, maybe even four years, make every board member recommit on an annual basis. And it allows them to frankly revisit that graceful exit clause. So if life circumstances do create their inability to participate fully, then maybe they have exactly, as you said, that graceful exit opportunity. And so I'm just glad that you're putting it up front. And I just think those organizations that have done so uh, are so much healthier in terms of their attendance. And those that are involved are clear about that. You know, the other thing you mentioned, Lee, I think is important in that kind of philanthropic leadership, that that's the area I see that organizations tiptoe around in sometimes an uncomfortable manner. They, they want to recruit a board member, uh, but they don't want to scare them off. And so areas around giving and getting become really problematic. And I would suggest best practices be upfront. Of course, board members know that you want them to contribute financially and that you'd like to help in the philanthropic process. So I think it's better to say that up front. We have an annual fund. We hope you're going to give, but we also have some special events or we also have other opportunities to contribute. And then that way a new board member can feel better about what's coming and not be blindsided by it later. I'm so glad you left that up because that is a question that you and I get often is, you know, should I include giving and getting and should I spell out the expectation? Does that limit me? But I think our point that we found successful in the boards that we've worked with is, yeah, spell that out on the front end so that people have a realistic job preview. Absolutely right. And, and I'm glad you're lifting up as I look at our, our shared notes here. The second item you think is critical uh, is one that we might, well, I would suggest most organizations take for granted, but talk about the power of a really good board directory. Yeah. So I think you're right. This is something that is an afterthought sometimes, but I actually think it's critical based on what we've learned from conversations with our colleagues to be thoughtful about a board directory for your board members. And not only should it be, you know, just a list of names and email addresses, but include their picture, Uh, have them write or, you know, put a, a template together for them to write a brief bio include maybe a link to their LinkedIn page or at least their company profile and perhaps a current committee that they're working on or committees that they've served on in the past. And the important thing with the directory, as you can imagine, is that this needs to be updated yearly. So you were just talking about really needing to get people to re-sign a letter of agreement or re-agree to the job description. And I think that it's an opportunity every year to make sure that your directory is updated And that's not just the staff's responsibility. Uh, We really want board members to want to show themselves and and update their information. So kind of on a yearly cadence, if you want to say, hey, is your picture still up to date? Is this still a good uh, link for your LinkedIn page? Um, Anything you want to update so that that is something that new board members and returning board members can have um, in their pocket. And just think about the power of this community that I think is often left uh, unresolved or or certainly not fully maximized. And it, we take for granted, we may know the board members, but they don't know each other, especially if the board meets infrequently. And again, we're only seeing them at a surface level and we don't know where they went to school or their previous employment or their spouse and family and other connections that might bring us together as board members, which of course makes us a more engaged board member in general as we represent this organization. So I love that. And again, it didn't occur to me until you developed some of these directories for some boards we worked with recently. And I'm convinced the board now is more engaged. And again, we avoid, particularly in a COVID environment, if I'm only connected in a virtual sense, I have very limited interaction with my fellow board members. It's just easy for me to just check in and check out. And so this creates community. It's an easy tool. And by the way, I think also this directory could maybe even if it's a you know, password protected for board members, but could be an online resource so that board members can check in before each meeting and get to know their fellow board members even better. Absolutely. And that's just really about also being a steward of their time. I mean, these are busy folks that we're asking to volunteer their time and 
you know, give them the tools to quickly do a refresher before they're going into the board meeting about who they're going to be meeting with. They don't really necessarily have the time to look up uh, these folks if you don't give them access and resources to be able to do it. And the exercise you led with one organization comes to mind in particular, it was a perfect warm up for a board retreat because then board members, I think, were more attentive to getting to know and study the biographies of everyone else on the board because they knew they would have time to interact. And so the level of engagement was even stronger because of what may be seen as a relatively simple exercise of creating the the directory and these bios. Exactly. And um, I think that I'm going to tease the third element because I think a, a third element of what should definitely be included in that onboarding packet among others is a financial overview of the organization. So if I can shift us there, that's uh, my next item. I love that. And I'm glad you are because so often, and well, let me first kind of spell it out. You're suggesting that a key to overall board engagement is making sure each board member is comfortable with the financial model and Lee, I would thought would have thought, and I bet many listeners do think that, well, that's the finance committee's responsibility, but you're taking it a step further. Exactly. I think that everyone can sometimes be scared of the board finances. I think maybe we all have some memories going back to some economics courses in college or whatever it may be, but we're just saying that we find that the best boards have all their board members have a basic understanding of at least the three key revenue drivers and three key expense drivers for the organization. So like you said, not everyone on the board needs to be on the finance committee or be a financial expert who understands you know, the ins and outs of the budget and all the nitty gritty details. But I think we would say that all uh, everyone needs to be comfortable with the basic financial model. Such a good point. And I think it ties back to your number one point. For me to be a confident ambassador as a board member in the community, increasingly, I'm going to be asked questions about, well, don't you all get government funds? Or how? what percentage of your money comes from grants? Or how did your big special event do in terms of revenue? Where does all the expenses go in terms of your organization's output? And so I don't have to know every detail, but I find that this kind of rule of three, if I can generally articulate the three main revenue sources and I can generally articulate where our money goes, you know, usually that top three in terms of where the money goes is going to be programming or personnel or certain categories. But every board member ought to be able to, you know, make that point or be able to explain at a high level what the financial picture looks like. Exactly. And I think that that job kind of comes back to our nonprofit leaders to make sure that their board is really educated on that. So like you said, maybe it's another one pager that's included in the onboarding packet um, and taking the time to have a brief overview with everyone, not just the finance committee, to go over that piece so that they are able to be those confident ambassadors. Yeah, don't Um, bury them, Lee, as you said, uh, with the back to your three ring binder point, don't don't give them five million spreadsheets of data. They will not read it. And if they do, they may not understand it. And so that's why I love your point of why not create that one pager that can kind of give this high level overview, which would help me as a board member better understand. Exactly. And I don't think that we can talk about, you know, building comfort around the financial model without addressing fundraising, of course. So I've found in my conversations with colleagues on boards that, a critical piece is uh, that everyone's can be nervous about when they join a board is, you know, am I going to have to ask people for money? And some people get really energized by that. I think you'd say in our conversations with, um, with board leaders, but some people, you know, it makes them uncomfortable. And what I think it's important for nonprofit leaders to understand is that they need to be able to meet their board members where they are. Not every board member is going to be okay and comfortable making the ask quote unquote, but that's okay. Because as we know from our work, Patton, there's a whole development cycle that we can involve our board members in and get them to be participating in philanthropy without inviting investment. Yeah. I find that's one of the most reassuring kind of discussions I have. And you and I've had with boards in a a retreat or kind of workshop setting is presenting this overall platform of philanthropy is not just asking for money. 
There are different phases and board members can plug into the different phases. Sure. We want those that are comfortable to be willing to go and ask for support, but others might contribute to other phases. For example, just identifying funders or making connections in the community that could lead to conversations that the staff could follow up with. Uh, helping articulate the mission and vision, as we've talked about earlier in our communications and marketing. Um, being willing to host events, you know, we call the donor cultivation phase. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to ask for money, but you can be part of a relationship building exercise. And of course, board members can be fantastic in expressing gratitude. You know, the donor stewardship phase of this cycle uh, is such a, I think, rewarding effort. It's a feel-good activity to thank someone as a volunteer. So the point, as you said, Lee, is we don't need you all to be involved in the same activity. We just want you involved somewhere as a board member in this development cycle. Yes. And understanding, again, how philanthropy ties into the whole financial model of the organization so that they can clearly articulate and be comfortable with that piece as well. That's a good point. And, and I think sometimes we overcomplicate things and assume that, well, we're not going to turn them into full-time fundraisers, which of course we're not. But I would suggest as you think about as a nonprofit leader listening to this, can your board members articulate a high-level case at three levels for philanthropy? In other words, number one, can your board members articulate a case for annual giving? Why is it important for someone to support your nonprofit on an annual basis? Secondly, what opportunities are there for major giving or significant investment? As a board member, can they articulate what I would call the wish list, where there are opportunities for larger gifts? Again, I talked to a lot of board members who say, yeah, I don't really know what I would ask for if someone said they had a large amount to give. You know, they're so used to that annual giving appeal that perhaps they're not comfortable with what could we do with 10,000, 50,000 or a half million. And then finally, does your board member at a high level understand the importance of legacy or plan giving? And again, all of this does not have to be dozens of pages of explanation for a board member, but at a high level, your board member should be able to articulate annual giving, major giving, and legacy giving. And that, again, in my opinion, makes them a more confident ambassador. Yeah. And I think it ties back to some of, you know, number one and number two, these are also interconnected. You know, if you've done a really good job articulating what your strategic priorities are for the year, then that board member is able to say, you know, your annual giving is most likely to go to these exciting priorities that we have and all the things that we're working on to achieve our mission and vision. Well, it's like you said, Lee, what, what we're talking about in total in this episode, we're talking less than 10 pages of content. You know, we're, we're, I think there are a lot of important concepts, but the, the hard part perhaps is distilling it in a way, but it's so valuable if, if the organization's willing to do so, we'll have our board members hitting the ground running so much faster. And I guess that leads to our next topic, as you have identified, the fourth best practice, of course, is one thing to get the, our current board engaged and, and hit the ground running when they arrive. But we also need to be finding the next generation or the new board (laughs) members. So talk about what you're seeing in terms of best practice around uh, recruiting and nominating of board members. Yeah, so I think that we would say that the best boards that we've worked with are truly engaging in recruitment year round. You know, I'm so glad that we just had a chance to talk about the ongoing development cycle and the fact that that development cycle is happening year round, because I think that's how we should be thinking about recruitment and nominating. Um, In fact, when you really think about it, I think a lot of our nonprofit leaders think about just recruitment a few weeks or a few months out of the year, just due to time constraints, or that's how the norm has fallen for boards. But we really need to build out that pipeline of board members to keep our organization moving forward. And that's going to involve thinking about it year round. So I have, I think I have some ideas to talk through some tactics and some materials to help people think about what that recruiting and nominating uh, year round can look like. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and you're right. It's funny how organizations are all very comfortable in terms of donor development. And it, it, of course, it is a year round constant activity, but yet they wait 
the nominating committee only meets one time, you know, just before the new terms are supposed to start. And then we chase people. And you're suggesting, however, there are tactics you can employ right now, I guess, to create this year-round mindset. So talk about, yeah, what what can I do if I'm listening and I want to create this year-round culture? Exactly. So I think that a, the important place to start is to assess where you're at if you don't already know. So what I mean by that is creating a simple matrix to ensure that you have a diverse set of folks on your board. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I know my board members, I, I know, you know, kind of who we have represented. And then you think more deeply about it and you're like, well, wait a second. I don't, I don't really know where that person's, what that person's background is, or do we really have somebody representing these types of folks? I think it's not a bad thing to, to ask your board members, you know, get a reminder of their background, do a simple survey where they literally have to fill out, you know, if it's um, a board member or if it's a board for higher education. I know we've worked with a couple of boards at NC State that have done this uh, literal activity. They asked them to fill out a simple survey identifying, you know, what their major was in college and what type of work they're doing now, among other things, so that they could have a matrix that they work from saying how their board looks right now. And then from there, you can analyze the data that you gathered or the data you already have and literally discuss, okay, where are holes? What are the types of profiles of ideal targets for our next generation of board members? That's so good. In fact, I used your tactic with a, and it was in fact a university. And it was amazing how the illustration of that spreadsheet made them more engaged in nominating because they saw quickly that, wow, 95% of our board members are 50 and 60 years old, you know, representing those decades. And, but they did not have adequate representation in many other ways, uh, you know, diversity in all forms. They didn't have geographic diversity in terms of the communities they were serving. They didn't have some of those skills and experience. So to your point, the the survey instrument made them realize that they were really good in financial services, but perhaps could use more in the healthcare arena or more board members from real estate and development because of some activities they had in the future. So those simple activities, again, are helpful, and then they become an illustration. And then once you see where the gaps are, I think that's where the nominating energy really comes because you can say, all right, we don't have someone from the Western part of our state who represents the healthcare field. That helps our recruitment process be more targeted. Right. And um, on that recruitment process, I think that once you identified your targets, we really need to think about what materials our nonprofit leaders have to help with recruitment and nomination. I think so often, it comes down to those few weeks out of the year or few months out of the year that we're looking for our next generation of our next slate of board members. And you can kind of have a scramble moment where, you know, you're emailing your, your current board members are emailing people that could serve next year, let's say. And so hopefully we've convinced people to do that a little bit more year round. (laughs) And I'd like to also put forth the idea that you know, have a, have a one pager. We've talked so many about so many one pagers that we want you to create, but this is a really important one. Um, a, a marketing flyer, you know, for your board members to have, to literally post different places or take to their networks. And that one pager could include, you know, the basic expectations and requirements for serving on your board. And also what those people can expect from you and your organization for their service. So we want to make sure that our nonprofit leaders are thinking, okay, if we're going to recruit folks, what does that really look like? And just get it down on a piece of paper or one that can be reposted on LinkedIn and, you know, really think about what we're asking of folks and what we're offering in return. Yeah, well, and, and I want to underline that because I thought you did one that was brilliant in terms of it wasn't just what the expectations were, but it also was a kind of a true marketing tool in that here's the value you will get by serving on this board. Because let's face it, people are pondering multiple volunteer opportunities, particularly talented uh, community volunteers. And so there is a bit of a recruitment or marketing tactic there to say, hey, we've got a dynamic board and staff and organization. You want to be part of this. And so sometimes I guess you can lift up the current board 
In other words, people like to know who they're going to serve with and opportunity to interact with. And so um, for younger board members being recruited, uh, that was, I think, a big selling point, I think, wasn't it, Lee, that they were kind of pitching the point that, hey, this is a board you want to serve on because of the networking possibilities and maybe some other advantages about or beyond just here's the expectations of what you're going to have to do. Right. And I think that one that we um, helped our clients create actually included, you know, a, few, a couple FAQs. So, you know, if, if I've never served on a board before or I've served on other ones, I might have some questions about what this literally looks like, what are the next steps to applying, and, you know, what are the time commitments, et cetera. So maybe including that as part of the one pager would be a good uh, tip as well. And um, speaking of, you know, how to apply, I think that that's something where a lot of our nonprofit organizations do fall short is we have, you know, maybe a a paper application or we don't really have an application at all. And it really just does come from referrals. But taking a little bit of time to think about a very basic, what I'm suggesting is an online application that new potential nominees can fill out or applicants can fill out. And that can be as simple as a five question survey monkey survey or a Google form where you literally think about what you would need for people to apply to be part of your board. And then there's a link perhaps on that electronic marketing flyer, or there's a link on LinkedIn where people can literally go and fill out if they're interested in joining your organization. Yeah, I love that. In fact, I would encourage every listener right now, if I pose the question to you, if I go to your organization's website, is it clear what what it means to serve on your board? Is there an opportunity to apply to serve on your board? And and that doesn't mean, of course, you have to accept every applicant that comes randomly through your website or through this electronic form. But if we want to create a, an environment that is attractive to talented individuals, why don't we feature, number one, current board members? Are we lifting up the profiles of our current board members to demonstrate the talent we already have? Do we lift up, as you said, Lee, maybe the FAQs? What's it like to serve on the board here? What are the expectations? What is the value proposition for serving? And then finally, and I see far too few organizations doing what you just said, give somebody an opportunity. Who knows uh, someone who's in your community that might well raise their hand to serve if you were simply to give them an opportunity to do so? Exactly. And I think the last piece of this idea of engaging in year-round recruiting and nominating is how are you getting the word out about the opportunity in the first place? You know, like I said, a few minutes ago, I think the tendency is to just have our current board members talk to their friends or talk to their networks or, um, you know, cause that's frankly the easiest. And sometimes when we're scrambling to get more folks, that's where we turn to, but I really want to urge our nonprofit leaders to think about where these materials are going to be posted. So hopefully you've taken a little bit of time to put together a simple one pager with an FAQ and you've created an application for people to fill out and then think about where you're going to post that. Um, Jim Taylor, who I know has been on the podcast a couple of times at BoardSource has talked about making sure that we are posting this opportunity in a wide variety of places. If you want to attract a wide variety of recruits. So thinking about going back to the matrix and thinking about where your gaps are, Well, if you're trying to get, if you're trying to attract a more diverse group of next board members, then make sure that you're posting it in places that a more diverse group is going to see it. I'm so glad you lifted up our friend, Jim Taylor at BoardSource. He articulates that beautifully and it makes such sense. If we just use our current board, then you're going to keep getting board members like the ones you have. And that's, that's fine, but it's not going to help you diversify or expand. Um, because we're all limited to our own social circles. And so if we continue to recruit within only those social circles, then we're going to keep getting the board demographics we have now. And so if you're truly committed to diversifying your board, you need to be more proactive. And again, Lee, you're providing, I think, our listeners ideas for tools, and those tools do travel. And you can get them into different settings. And obviously, the technology and social media now exists to get the word out. And so I just think that's such a good way to help create a better diversity that I think most nonprofits are saying they want to do. You're giving them actually ways to do it. 
Exactly. And involve your board members in that, you know, not only say, Hey, we want you to get the word out, but Hey, Susie Jones, we want you to think of three places to post this in the next couple weeks that are not necessarily avenues that we've thought about so far. And so that, I just don't want that to always fall to the staff to really get that, uh, get the word out there, you know, have your, have your board leaders think about, um, diversifying the pipeline as well. Well, well, and the other thing, your toolkit or this marketing toolkit, if you will, for board nominating and recruitment, there are two other audiences that I think are, are vastly underutilized. Number one is all of your previous board members. Historically, you probably have a roster of, certainly they were at one time, very engaged in your organization. And I think that is one of the most missed opportunities is previous board members. You send this packet to them. They understand what it's like to be on the board. Give them a tool and an opportunity to help you recruit and nominate. A second category is some of your key donors and sponsors. And you send them a packet and say, as you know, you invest in us. You want this organization to thrive. We need ideas for talented individuals. And of course, it wouldn't be bad at all if maybe your top corporate sponsor says, hey, we have somebody here uh, you know, at our, our company that would like to serve on your board, or I'm a significant donor. Maybe there's a family member that would be a really good board member. But again, it all leads back to, Lee, you're giving them a toolkit, and now they just need to be more strategic in how they deploy it. Exactly. And making sure again, that that's happening, not just a couple of weeks out of the year. So I'm so glad that, you know, maybe you do, uh, maybe you post it in, on LinkedIn in a couple months of the year, and then you really make a targeted effort to go back to your former board members another time. So really spread it out throughout the year so that it doesn't seem like such a burden at one time. Excellent. Well, this seems like a good uh, opportunity to segue to your area of absolute expertise. In fact, for those listeners who don't know who you are, um, I don't want to take for granted the uh, talent and experience you bring to our firm, and in particular expertise around the fifth point about hitting reset on board meetings. And I'll let you explain that in a minute. But Lee, I got to ask you for those listeners, Zona, how did you even get into this concept of meeting science and, and uh, literally pursue it all the way through a PhD? Thank you, Patton. Um, I was lucky enough to pursue my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where I was in the organizational science program. And I worked um, under the direction of Dr. Steven Rogelberg, who is uh, a, a meeting scientist, has done tons of research in that area. And I was really engaged with his work and actually made it the subject of my dissertation. I studied multitasking during meetings, which I referenced <laughs> during our last episode. And it's something that I still can talk about ad nauseum. But um, I was excited to think about, you know, board meetings over the last year and a half and how they've changed and how we see them going forward. So thank you for letting me kind of slide some meetings, uh, some meetings topics into this episode as well, because I know that that is something that you and I have talked to a lot of our colleagues about. Well, I know I tease you about kind of your focus on meeting science and all that, but I am a newfound fan of this science that you have educated me about, and I think it is critical, and I'm glad you lift it up as the fifth point of the best practices that you see in nonprofit organizations, in particular their boards, because so many of them, Lee, have terrible meetings. And I'm being intentionally provocative to our listeners right now. But I think I that's fair. I bet they're nodding their head like, yep, uh, we do have bad meetings. So what can we do about it, Lee, if, if we are acknowledging and agreeing with you on this point number five? You're suggesting we need to hit reset on our board meetings. What do you mean by that? I am. And I think that if you've gone through, you know, the other steps that we've talked about where you've gotten a really great group of folks together, they all understand your mission and vision. They understand the basics around the finances. They are engaged. They're excited to work with you. And then you have bad board meetings. Well, that engagement is quickly going to plummet. And so as a meeting scientist, one of the things that I love about meetings is that they usually are so bad. <laughs> That leaves a lot of room. Lots to of contribute. opportunity. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So what I mean by hitting reset in this context is you and I are so often asked about 
particularly right now, the format of board meetings in the current COVID environment. We were just uh, talking about it this morning. I know we've talked about it practically every week or month since this pandemic has begun. What do we do about, you know, how do we improve our virtual meetings? And now in January 2022, as we're recording this, we are seeing some organizations go back to in-person meetings in some cases. But what about, you know, how do we do that? And how do we kind of continue to have good meetings going forward? And so we're so often asked, you know, should we go back to in-person? Should we stay virtual, try a hybrid approach? And I think what I would say is that, unfortunately, this answer might not be satisfying, but it really depends on your organization. Um, I would really invite leaders to take a step back and reassess what board meetings are going to look like for their organizations going forward. I think there's an assumption that we should go back to in-person meetings whenever possible. And I think you and I would both agree that uh, the couple of in-person meetings we've gotten to have over the past year and a half have been really engaging. And it is nice to be uh, in-person if they are conducted by a good leader and facilitator. And they really can be ideal in a lot of situations. However, I really want our nonprofit leaders to pause, hit reset, and reflect and kind of gather some data on what we've learned over the last year and a half or two years about virtual meetings and what we can take away from those virtual meetings before automatically assuming that we should go back to how our meetings looked in person pre-pandemic. Could not agree more. And you uh, here in the new year, those listening as this episode is released in early 2022, now is a great time to poll your board about uh, kind of the mechanics of your current board. I think a lot of organizations are going through the motions just because they've always done it that way. And, and you might may finally, as you suggest, are there some things that don't need to be part of the full board agenda that could be done offline or could be done through another communication channel? Are we meeting enough? Not enough. Are we meeting too, too long or, you know, the duration of each meeting? Um, I think the best thing I've seen organizations do is have an annual review of their meeting structure. And even if it is to confirm that, yes, this is the way we need to do it to keep everybody engaged. But I just see most organizations keep going through the motions and then they wonder why attendance drops, as you suggested earlier. And so I guess this reset, Lee, could be in the form of maybe an annual kind of, I don't know, audit or, or some sort of tool to, to literally get at the, the nature of our meetings and how we can make them better. Absolutely. And the, the scientist in me who loves data is, you know, wants to urge our leaders to simply gather a little bit of data from your own board. Doesn't need to be overly complicated, you know, going back to those, uh, that survey monkey or Google form that I lifted up a minute ago, you know, what, how are our meetings for you? What should we keep doing? What should we stop doing? What should we start doing? Um, those types of questions and really give them a platform to express their comfort with going back in person. And, you know, we think, I think you and I have both seen that some of our colleagues have embraced the virtual meeting going forward, at least for one board meeting. So if you meet three or if you meet quarterly, maybe making one of those board meetings entirely virtual or, you know, really assessing what works for you and your organization in your meeting cadence and gathering some input from folks about what they would like to do going forward. I really think that this pandemic and the new year has given us permission to um, reflect and hit reset in that and, and be thoughtful about how we're going to move forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And Bottom line, of course, that your point of emphasis is do meetings better. Yeah. Um, and I think there's an opportunity, you know, uh, in terms of accessibility technology, we have all learned to handle the virtual meetings better. Uh, you probably can do it even better still. And that's what this reset would allow you to do. Um, of course, we want to get back in person as much as possible. And I wonder, Lee, your opinion on, you know, you mentioned the hybrid meeting concept which I'm seeing some organizations, I, I feel like they're kind of straddling the fence of, all right, well, we'll get some of our group back together in person, but 
will let others kind of continue to join by Zoom or whatever. What are your thoughts on that in terms of the, you know, the potential for a successful board meeting like that? Oh, we had a dollar for every time we've been asked <laughs> by a board leader about what they should do about the hybrid meeting and and whether we whether we are in favor or against. And I would say that research would show research shows that hybrid meetings can be problematic. You know, it's already hard enough as it is to conduct a dynamic meeting where everyone's engaged. And, you know, in my last episode, I was able to talk about some strategies to kind of improve that. And you've already referenced some of them, but it's it's hard enough to do all that. And then you add in the hybrid element where some people are in person while others aren't. And you can kind of inadvertently create an in-group and an out-group. That's something that um, I did some research on in graduate school about you know, in within a team or within a group, you can kind of have an in-group and out-group. And that is really easy to do when you have some people that are in person and some people that are joining virtually, which can be extremely problematic, especially from an equity standpoint and trying to create, you know, um, psychological safety in your meetings and make sure that everyone is on equal footing when we start the meeting. And so if you're already starting where some people are there and some people aren't, it can really create an awkwardness that is really problematic from the standpoint of running a good board meeting. Yeah. And of course you and I both agree there are exceptions and, and you have to accommodate the board member who literally can't attend. And, and so, yes, maybe you allow for technology to invite someone in where everyone else is in person. But I know as a facilitator and those listening often are the facilitator for their board meetings it can be very complicated to deal with the people online while you're dealing with the people in the room. Um, and it's just a substandard experience for just about everybody. So I wonder if the hybrid actually is, you know, alternate in person with virtual, but keep everybody in the same environment, I guess, Lee is what you're saying, right? So we're all on the kind of level playing field, either in person or online. Exactly. I think if people started to think about hybrid in that way, um, it'd be a really interesting new conversation. Um, and, you know, again, I think it's going to depend on your organization. And also, like you said, your your leadership style or your facilitation style and how good you are at navigating all that. And also, you know, your resources for how the technology looks. So, you know, in 2021, I know our technology is increasing gotten better for bringing people in virtually, but there's still that awkwardness of trying to, you know, come off mute and interrupt the live conversation to be that person that's attending remotely if you don't have to be. And I'm glad that you articulated that, of course, there's going to be those situations. But if possible, I think our stance is bringing people together either virtually or in person whenever, um, you know, making that the rule for everyone, quote unquote, and going from there. But kind of goes back to my first point that we need to gather some data on what your board members want and what their preferences are. And that doesn't need to be something that they commit to for all of our future board meetings. But hey, over the next year, what do you think our board member or our board meetings should look like, you know, in person, virtual, how long, kind of going back to some of those other meeting tactics that I talked about on the last episode, but kind of gather some data from your folks before you really make a decision. Well, and again, to underscore that, and it's a great point, um, don't do the, well, let's just wait until COVID finally goes away. Uh, Of course, we want it to go away as soon as possible. But as a proactive nonprofit leader, I think you've got to anticipate that there may be a continuing uh, element here that you're going to have to deal with. And, And so make your meetings better be willing to do them in a virtual environment if necessary. Um, and, and to me, the best practice organizations we've seen have done that. They're, they're adept now at virtual meetings. They're doing them well. They're using the breakout functions. They're more engaging versus the not best practice organizations are still kind of limping through this and their meetings are a reflection of a poor level of board engagement. And that's, again, I know all of your advice today in this episode, Lee, are creating a better engagement and certainly meetings are an important part. Absolutely. Fantastic advice throughout this conversation, Lee. As always, I learn something each time I talk to you about this stuff. 
Um, I will encourage our listeners, of course, to check out the show notes because we'll try to put more detail in terms of each of these five elements. And I guess, yeah, is there anything else, Lee, you would want to add to as a listener thinking, all right, lots of ideas here. Anything else you would encourage them to implement as they kind of consider the takeaways from this conversation? You know, one thing that uh, has come up in a a couple of our conversations with those in our mastermind program and just with our clients in general is how to engage the next generation of leaders on the board. And I'm not sure I have the answer just yet or what it would look like for everyone, but I think I want to charge our nonprofit leaders to think more critically about how to include the next generation in their board. Um, Speaking as a millennial, I think my generation and those younger than me have important talents to offer boards if given the opportunity. So it's just something for nonprofit leaders to ponder. Um, Perhaps it could be the topic of a future episode, Patton. Love that. And I'm glad uh, you're posing it rhetorically now to our listeners, but I'll, I'll reinforce it. What are you doing, nonprofit leader listening to this episode to help create a space or a pipeline, if you will, for the next generation of board members? All these tactics can help uh, any age member of a potential board recruiting class. Uh, And I do think the organizations that are thoughtful in this area are going to be the ones that succeed in the long run. So grateful for all of this, Lee, each of your uh, ideas and, and recommendations. As you know, Uh, among the final recommendations I'm going to seek for you is a book recommendation or maybe book or two that has been meaningful to you. And maybe you could add to the list of recommendations for our listeners. Happy to. And that is something that I will say you being such a, a, a reader, I have tried my best to not keep up with you, but to be a little bit better about my reading. And I've really enjoyed um, some of the reading that you've encouraged me to do and that you've encouraged a lot of listeners to do over the past um, couple years that I've been working at PMA. And uh, I want to lift up two, actually, I know you'd be proud of me. I feel like I should get bonus points for lifting up two. <laughs> but um, one that I really enjoyed at the end of last year was A World Without Email by Cal Newport. I know you and I are both a fan of lots of his work. And it was, you know, another, another title by him that really got me thinking about re-engaging in work right now when we're all so overloaded with email. And he just has some really interesting ideas about how uh, work should really look, even though work's completely dependent on on our um, devices. And as somebody that studied multitasking for my dissertation, he talks a lot about the hyperactive hive mind and how we need to kind of evolve past that and that's what I would agree with based on my research of, you know, we're not great at handling all of the information that comes at us. And I know that that's something that you talk about with a lot of uh, podcast guests is, you know, just how to prioritize that. So I think he's got some really good tactics um, that he lifts up in that book for how this is going to look, how this should look right now and how it's going to look in the future. No, that's fantastic. Well, you knew I'm going to endorse a Cal Newport uh, uh, recommendation. It started for me with his deep work and he's got a number of wonderful books that I think we'll get to productivity and other elements, as you noted in uh, a world without email. Uh, So that was your 2021 recommendation. Uh, I believe you might have one though already here in early 2022 that you might share as well. Proud to say that I am trying to do even more reading in 2022 and it's going to be hard to beat my book that I'm already loving from the first recording this a couple of weeks into January. I loved the art of gathering from uh, by Priya Parker. I think maybe because it's related to gatherings and meetings, which as you know, I'm uh, really passionate about, but it was a, it's, she's got tons of ideas on what gathering looks like and some, some tactics for folks to consider. And not only does she comment on work meetings, but also other types of gatherings that we all face in our lives, everything from, you know, getting together with friends to the dinner party. So it was, it was a fun read and I really learned a lot, even as a meeting scientist. So, um, I would lift that up for anyone that's looking to read, uh, more about gatherings and meetings. Fantastic. Lee, thank you again for this now second conversation that we're able to feature on the podcast. And I will look forward to joining you again here on the path.
Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lee as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey, particularly as it relates to that critical aspect of board engagement. And hopefully you'll have some good ideas you can apply right now to that dynamic. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about Lee, this episode number 140, as well as her previous appearance on the podcast, which was episode number 59. And as always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see the follow button. That's what will take you to any of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing every other month. And of course, if you like this episode, click on the Episodes button on the podcast page, and you can scroll back through any of now what amounts to 140 episodes. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path. 